Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Helen Thompson is the first of three very different historians we're calling on this hour to trace patterns from the past into the global predicament today. Oil and gas are Helen Thompson's angle of observation. Jackson Lears will be up next, tracking the course of American empire. Robin Kelly, who writes about freedom dreams in the black radical imagination, will follow with an argument about the old roots of 21st century fascism. And so we begin the second season of a radio podcast series we call In Search of Monsters, in collaboration with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Helen Thompson, get us started, please. Your new book from Oxford is titled Disorder, about our condition and our future. The three-letter word that drives the disorder, you say, is spelled O-I-L. Your subtitle is Hard Times in the 21st Century. It's part of your argument that oil made the last century, meaning just what? Well, if you look at the beginning of the, the 20th century, um, when oil was starting to become significant um, as an energy source, the European powers, particularly Britain, obviously, were the most important geopolitically in the right. world. Churchill knew he needed it for his navy. Churchill knew, though, the world was changing. Uh, and the world was changing because there were two countries that were the large oil producers. They were the United States and Russia. And I don't believe it's any coincidence that the United States and Russia, albeit Russia as the Soviet Union, went on geopolitically to dominate the 20th century and the European powers fell away. And the European powers fell away because they had an oil dependency problem. They had to find it from somewhere. You say Ukraine is an oil war, that Europe is in an oil panic about prices and supply. You seem to say that Vladimir Putin is losing the military war but could still win the oil war. Help us locate it. Where is the front line in this oil war? The front line is, is Europe because Europe, countries have made themselves very dependent for 50-odd years now on first Soviet and then Russian energy. And the war has turned that world upside down. And it's turned that world upside down because for Putin, energy is a geopolitical weapon. It's a geopolitical weapon that he was willing to use against Ukraine itself. And now he's willing to use as an instrument to try to defeat Ukraine by essentially breaking European support for Ukraine during this conflict. The history of it goes back essentially to Europe's European countries' fundamental problem in the age of oil and later of gas is that they are dependent on foreign countries for it. And if you think about it, there are three principal clusters of oil in the world geographically. This is a bit of an oversimplification, but it will do. Russia and Central Asia, the Middle East, and America's particularly North America. We tend to forget that Putin has almost as much oil as Saudi Arabia does under Russian soil. Yeah, I mean, Russia is one of the three big oil producers in the world. I mean, and in fact, you could argue that it's been persistently a longer term major oil producer than either Saudi Arabia or the United States. You could argue that over the long course of the second half of the 20th century and the first part of the 21st century, that 
Russia has been the most significant oil producing country. And right now, its influence is compounded, deepened by the fact it's in an alliance with Saudi Arabia in order to control oil prices and to control how much oil most of the countries in the world outside the United States that produce oil produce at any one time. And for Putin, this has been a, a very considerable advantage that is made up in lots of ways for what have been a succession of military disasters for Russia. It's fascinating and a little tricky to think of this vicious Ukraine war as being all about a commodity, not ego or madness or national pride or democracy squaring off against a dictator. It's not ideology, you say. It's not values or culture. We tend to call it everything but a resource war, and I wonder why. For lots of reasons, people would rather think about the wars of the 20th century in values terms, because in some sense it's easier to mobilise people to go to war and to support wars if they think that they're fighting for some set of principles, values attached with their own country. Trying to persuade them to engage in resource wars is, I think, actually quite difficult. And certainly Putin has shown himself very well aware of the energy consequences of who controls the Black Sea. But I don't think it's his principal motivation for pursuing the war. His principal motivation is is he doesn't recognise the legitimacy of a Ukrainian independent state and he's constructed that independent Ukrainian state into something that's essentially, in his mind, an American client state that is determined to be disruptive towards Russia. But he very much thinks that resources and energy is his principal means for winning this war. Hmm. That's what makes it different. Now, what is interesting is is that the Western side has tried to play the energy war too. It's tried to do that via energy sanctions. They're not the only kind of important sanctions that have been placed on the um, Russian regime. The first response was much more concentrated on financial sanctions. But there have been successive rounds of sanctions on Russia's energy exports that have made it more difficult for Russia to sell its goods to European countries, the United States, and at times, at least in some areas, to be able to ship goods to non-Western countries. Now, I would say these sanctions haven't been particularly effective. We can see, for instance, that the European Union has now withdrawn the coal sanctions as they apply to third-party countries. And we haven't seen any change, I think, as a result of the sanctions in Putin's behaviour. What's intriguing about your argument is partly that it answers questions that have barely been asked. I mean, really, why did Putin invade Ukraine and why he persists? Your answer is that 21st century oil prices, driven up by Asian demand, gave Putin an opportunity to restore Russia as a great power, as only that commodity could do it. Is that what he's doing in Ukraine? He's taking advantage of the opportunity that you've just described, which was Russia financially depends on export revenues from energy. And what we saw at the beginning of the 21st century was a very large increase in oil prices culminating in June 2008 when they were $150 a barrel. And it was on the back of that, it was in that period when Putin turned Russia around from being a state that had, you know, in many ways been humiliated by the United States in the 1990s and where GDP and GDP per capita had slumped into something like the Russia that we know today. And he understood, I think, pretty systematically and pretty strategically 
that energy was the means by which he could reinvent Russia as a, as a great power. It puzzles me that the one thing we never talk about or fight for around the oil question is reducing consumption mm. in a radical way. The difficulty with oil is twofold in terms of reducing consumption. The first is the amount of it that is used in all kinds of things that people don't even think about, like plastic, for instance, petrochemicals. So it's not simply a question of doing something that immediately reduces energy consumption. And then the second thing, obviously, the biggest use of oil is in transportation, a politics in which you ask people to drive less. I think that that's incredibly difficult. And I go back then to the difficulties that Jimmy Carter had. And then you've got to talk about the use of oil in commercial transportation, you know, like trucks, moving food around the country, shipping, moving all the stuff that we buy from the other side of the world, from where it's produced to where we consume it. To consume radically less oil would be completely to change the way in which we live our lives. I think the car is a kind of symbolic issue too. It kind of became the symbol of freedom in the 20th century. And to say to people, we're moving away from mass car society to a world in which every time you want to move, that you're dependent upon public transport. I think that is just a place that most people don't want to go and that politicians are terrified about the idea that they should suggest that to people as the future. You seem to see that China is going to be way out front in the race toward green energy. Can China hold that lead in the 21st century? Clearly, the politics and the geopolitics and the environmental politics of extraction don't go away with solar and wind and electrification because they're all very dependent upon metals. And so, actually, we're already seeing yeah. a race, a geopolitical race, competition about metal extraction. And that is really where China's present advantages begin because China dominates the metal supply chains that are necessary for solar and wind and for electric vehicles too. China's in a pretty strong position where electric vehicle manufacturing um, is. And this isn't an accident. This is something that the Chinese have been strategic about for a long time. They've been strategic about rare earth minerals since the 1950s, so since the Mao era. I think it's very clear that if you go back to 2015, when China launched its Made in China 2025, in some sense that put the fear of God in Washington across the political spectrum, that China could well dominate and wanted to dominate the energy transition, including, in, as I say, in, in electric vehicles, but particularly perhaps in metal extraction. And I think there's been a determined effort, actually, not just by by the administration, but by Trump before, to try to catch up, to get the United States to catch up where metal extraction in particular is concerned. But it will take time for that to change. And the question for the immediate future will be, how does China's present advantages, which are considerable in solar and wind uh, manufacturing, how does that interact with China's ongoing fossil fuel geopolitical vulnerabilities? because China is the world's largest importer of oil now. It's a large importer of gas. Mm. Most of this comes by sea. And the Chinese are very, very well aware and that that offers opportunities for the United States Navy to blockade energy imports for them. And that is part of their strategic calculation. So what is going to be true, I think, of the world in which we're beginning to live in is that the green energy geopolitical dynamics that we're beginning to see coexist with the old fossil fuel energy geopolitical dynamics, that we're actually going to live in a world 
where energy is going to become, in, in some sense, even more geopolitically significant than it has been since the beginning of the 20th century. Your book, starting with the title, hammers the point that disorder is the state we're in. How long can we take it? I think the answer to the question of how long we're going to take it is, is can we take it, is, is we're going to have to learn to live with it because I just don't think that it's going away. And that will mean reimagining the way in which we live parts of our lives and adjusting to reduced energy consumption by one means or another for quite some time to come. Helen Thompson, thank you for the book. Thank you for speaking with us. It's been an absolute pleasure, Christopher. Thanks very much for having me. Coming up, the Party of the Republic meets the Party of Empire. Again, this is Open Source. This is Open Source. I think of Jackson Lears at Rutgers University as the historian of modern American spirit, appetites, aspirations, moods, up and down since the Civil War, through the World Wars, and now into the 21st century. Welcome back, Jackson Lears. What did Daniel Webster say? Neighbor, how stands the Union? I would have to say I think the Union is in great peril. I have felt that way for a long time, although I have had periods of hopefulness in my life. I've committed much of my career, a good deal of it, in addition to doing the kinds of cultural history that you were describing and trying to puzzle out how people make meanings for themselves Mm. out of the uh, motley mess of circumstance and prejudice and belief and aspiration and anxiety. I also have a particular political take that was shaped by my own experience coming of age as I did in the Vietnam War period, and going to a conservative Southern University, University of Virginia. Uh, I was opposed to the war, but given the background I came from, I had no conception that there was any real alternative to going in the military because I didn't want to either kill or be killed. I did like a lot of my friends did at the time, which was to join Naval ROTC. So I became a Naval officer And in 1969, I was trained as a uh, communications officer. I was given a top secret clearance and an assignment as a cryptographer on a a guided missile cruiser that carried nuclear weapons. Wow. The Navy officially denied, of course, that there were any nuclear weapons on board. So that was one of my early lessons in the practice of disinformation by the military. I was in a position, as I discovered fairly early on, that Had we received the message to launch the ship's nuclear weapons, to let those birds fly, I would have been one of the people who had to decrypt that message and make it happen. Mm. Ultimately, I could figure out no way that I could do this job without, without killing civilians. And I discovered I could apply for conscientious objector status and be discharged from the Navy. So I was, in fact, discharged honorably. But I felt that I had encountered up close something really fundamental about our way of life in the late 20th century and now in the, in the 21st, the nearness of catastrophe, the ease with which it could happen accidentally mm. or could, in fact, be deliberately engineered, all with the cover of a kind of bureaucratic blandness and neutrality. The denatured language uh, of bureaucracy took the horror, or at least tried to take the horror out of what we were actually doing. So that's where I'm coming from. And all through my career, I've done my best to try to promote a critical view of U.S. imperialism going back to the days of Teddy Roosevelt 
and forward to the present. I've also tried to foster alternative ways of thinking about relationships between nations, which don't involve absolute pacifism, but do involve a commitment to war as the summum malum, the worst thing that can happen. This is what has to be avoided at all costs. This is why we have diplomacy. This is why we have international relations. Can I say, Jackson Lears, I'm so glad you mentioned Teddy Roosevelt. Over the years, you've imprinted me with the notion that modern American history is a kind of running contest between two giant characters, the philosopher of pragmatism, William James, and his most boisterous student at Harvard, Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt, the rough rider, the man in the arena, charging up San Juan Hill. He said, at that time, unless we keep the barbarian virtues, gaining the civilized ones will be no help. William James, on the contrary, man of restraint after the horrors of the Civil War. His line was, beware the results of strong passions and bad ideas like slavery. But there you have it. Roosevelt comes to stand for the party of empire, James for the party of the republic. Don't we see those two impulses alive and struggling today? Well, I wish we saw more of a struggle, actually. I wish the forces of the republic were stronger than they are, or at least were allowed to have a more influential role to play on the public stage. You absolutely put your finger on it. Those two figures are, in some ways, the poles of American public culture for me. And certainly, republic versus empire is the key conflict that they articulate. James was himself a pacifist and anti-imperialist. And uh, like Roosevelt, he recognized, to a certain extent, the value of what Roosevelt called the barbarian virtues, the physical courage, and how it could in some ways combine with moral courage, but it could never become a substitute for it. And I think that James's uh, commitment to the barbarian virtues, his own version of them, the willingness to take risks, the willingness to live with uncertainty, and the need to exercise moral courage as well as physical courage, mm. all of this led him to urge a moral equivalent of war rather than war itself. James and Mark Twain and other anti-imperialists were on the losing side of the debate back in the early 20th century, but their views are still worth reading today, as are those of the whole anti-imperialist tradition. And I would include people like Randolph Bourne, who was a great critic of American entry into World War I and a disciple, ultimately, of, of William James, but also more recently, and in a more ambiguous way, people like Walter Lippmann and George Kennan, who started out as what they thought of as tough-minded, pragmatic realists in support of war, but then came around to see that the U.S. truly was an overextended empire and that we needed to stop and think about these overseas commitments we were making. Expand it, Jackson Lears. I mean, the history that forms this, what feels like disarray we're in in 2022, the other paths to this very disquieting time. It is a disquieting time. It's as if the advances we'd made in the wake of the Vietnam War and the attempt to come to terms with the overextended reach of empire and the waste of human and material resources have all been reversed and forgotten. There's no historical memory at all. I'll tell you one thing we've forgotten, and that is that nuclear war is a catastrophe to be avoided at all costs. This is something that did not fully come to fruition until the 80s and early 90s, when partly because Gorbachev 
was heading up the Soviet Union, and he persuaded Ronald Reagan to meet him almost halfway, but it was also because of the nuclear freeze movement and the great public outcry and citizen diplomacy, basically, on the Russian side and the U.S. side against the nuclear arms race. I mean, more generally speaking, I think there was a common understanding on what used to be called the left that maintaining an empire was a prescription for continued poverty at home, continued racial division, continued problematic and insecure living standards, inadequate health care, domestic necessities that any great power ought to be able to provide its citizens. And at the time, the argument was widely heard, look, we have this bloated, overgrown Pentagon. We've got eight or 900 bases abroad. We're maintaining it at enormous cost. And we could divert a good portion of this money to more peaceful purposes at home. And we could rebuild cities like Camden and Detroit and Baltimore that are empty shells of their former selves. We could do that partly with Pentagon money. That argument has virtually disappeared as well. And there again, it's an argument for a strong republic in the Jamesian tradition that is strong because it's a beacon of hope to mankind. It's not strong because it's running after monsters abroad to destroy, as John Quincy Adams famously said. It's strong because it embodies a decent way of life. It does its best to try to provide a decent way of life for citizens and to pursue a kind of public good in its politics. We don't have that kind of stature in the world anymore. We're looking at a loss of a sense of opportunity that we had beginning in the 70s and then really opening up in the 90s with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the opening up of Eastern Europe. And instead of turning that into a possibility and a platform for geopolitical pluralism, instead, the idea of a unipolar moment took charge of the policymakers in Washington. It didn't have to be this way, mm. but the moment was lost. And we are now in a situation where there are all sorts of signs that the empire, the U.S. empire, is in decline. It hasn't won a war since 1945, and uh, it is constantly embarking on inept, arrogant, and unsuccessful military adventures abroad. And as the feeling of decline begins to spread among the Washington elite, so does the frantic fervor of the flailings of the empire. And one of the most striking examples is the resurgence of an exceptionalist moralism that we are a uniquely virtuous as well as uniquely powerful uh, nation. And this leads to a profoundly moralistic view of the world rather than a pluralistic view. A pluralistic view would acknowledge that other nations have interests that are different from ours, but they still might have something in common with us, too, that we might need to cooperate. We can think of nuclear war as one of those subjects that we have in common. Climate change is another catastrophe in the making that requires international cooperation. And you, I would say true global leadership would involve, and this is a very Jamesian word, I realize, a pluralistic conception of foreign policy that acknowledges a diversity of interests among nations and yet still says, look, here are certain things we have to come together on, climate change and avoiding nuclear war. Jackson Lears, I associate you with the notion of American longing. After the Civil War, it expressed itself in your book, Rebirth of a Nation, as self-help, public religion, 
self-expression fads of all kinds, good and bad, a kind of energy in our national character. Where is our longing today? I think there's a longing for, for heroism, which can be very dangerous, as it was in Teddy Roosevelt's time, and as I think it continues today. I think there's a longing for harmony. I think there's a huge insecurity and frustration with the government's inability to actually do anything positive or helpful for ordinary people. What would William James say about our country, about the health and happiness of this country today? I think he would be dismayed. I think he would have been wryly amused, sardonically amused by the uh, the transformation of the War Department into the Defense Department uh, in 1947. Hmm. I think he would have been concerned about the creation of powerful, secretive bureaucracies uh, like the Central Intelligence Agency. I think he would have been truly alarmed by the growth of the military-industrial complex and would have responded to Eisenhower's farewell address quite seriously and would have taken his warnings very seriously. James was one of the very few people, white people, who spoke out against the epidemic of lynching in the South in the early 20th century. Hmm. He understood that there was a link between the carnivore in us that leads us into lynching and the carnivore in us that leads us into war. He said, we can never assume that this beast has been tamed. We have to always keep in mind that civilization is a thin crust over Mm. barbarism. I think he would see that to be the case more than ever now. He connected racial hostility to imperial adventures. But this is something that seems to be forgotten now, the link between domestic and, and foreign policy, generally speaking. So James would be... I wish he were here. I wish he were alive. Don't we all? He would be a powerful figure, or could be, if he were allowed to, to have his own show on CNN or something. <laughs> <laughs> what puzzles me is the gap between the ideals with which we go to war to the extent we have in Ukraine, but Iraq, Afghanistan, elsewhere, Vietnam above all, and the simple fact that it doesn't work. Yes. The military device does not deliver freedom. It delivers... Right. A wasteland. Yes. Why aren't we picking up on the incredible record of our lifetime since World War II? Well, this is the question, and I would want to say at the outset, I consider myself an anti-interventionist and an anti-imperialist, but when I say anti-interventionist, I don't mean I'm opposed to humanitarian intervention. I'm opposed to military intervention in the guise of humanitarian intervention because it's almost always tricked out in those kinds of moral garments. And yet what's really happening is the use of military force, as you say, and it has been spectacularly unsuccessful, catastrophic, really, in almost every case. I hate to go to an economic default setting, but I do think that this foreign policy, this militaristic foreign policy that we have followed since the late 40s, basically, makes a lot of people very rich. And those are people who have the power to influence policy. I'm not saying it's reducible, that the militarism is reducible to economics, but I think it's a great mistake to overlook the entrenched power and the capacity to influence congressional voting by threatening to withdraw the sub-base from Groton, Connecticut, to take one example, or to close down the Raytheon plant in your neighborhood. 
congressmen pay attention to these kinds of statements and threats. So I do think economics are a good part of it, entrenched economic power. But I also think there's a seductive power of, of ideology and the desire to be world savers, which looks mm. back at our past wars, most recently World War II, as successful humanitarian interventions, which really involved America saving the world. And both of those conceptions are deeply flawed. They overlook, for example, the role of the Soviet Union in, in defeating the Third Reich. Uh, and they also overlook the minimal influence of humanitarian aims on uh, U.S. intervention. Nevertheless, that's how World War II lives in American popular memory. And I think it's very easy to call on those memories. Again, speaking of longings, you know, longings for the moment when America really was number one, and not just number one economically and militarily, but apparently morally number one as well. None of those things are quite the case anymore, except possibly the military supremacy, although that remains to be seen too, but certainly not the economic supremacy. And the uh, challenge of, of a world of multipolarity is just too much to face. I think the seductions of unipolarity asserted themselves almost as soon as the Soviet Union fell, and they just began to take off uh, and be fed increasingly and intensely uh, and relentlessly by people in Washington who were ideologically predisposed to the idea of unipolarity. They believed in exceptional American virtue. They managed to get themselves influentially placed in uh, both parties' administrations and ultimately in the think tank world of Washington, too. So I think it's a combination of economic and emotional commitments and entrenched values and institutions that make it so hard to combat. I think there's a majority of Americans who are opposed uh, to a military interventionist foreign policy. They're they are America firsters, not in the Trumpian sense, but just in the sense of, look, let's take care of our immediate needs in our own backyard. And to the extent we're able after that, take care of foreign people's needs. But there are so many major problems in this country. And the, the answer is still that there are only so many resources to go around and that the military always gets priority. And that seems to be reasserted now, uh, once again, in the wake of the Ukraine war. And we're not seeing any lessening of those kinds of commitments we were making. Jackson Lewis, you give us a lot to think about. It's wonderful to hear you again. Can't thank you enough for your writing, for your work, for this conversation. Thank you, Chris. It's my pleasure. I appreciate it. Coming up, a black radical imagination that's in touch with the ancestors and the next generation now. This is Open Source. Robin D.G. Kelly at UCLA ranges far and wide over African-American history, culture, social experience, and imagination. 
I told him, we're following Joe Biden's example, calling in historians to the White House to help him see his progress on the map of events. Robin Kelly, you're one of our prized historians and map makers of the present and of what's coming. And I guess I start with the premise that people are scared. The ice is melting as we speak. Pakistan is half underwater. Where the hell are we? People must ask you. Yeah, and Sweden just turned to the right. You know, Sweden was one of our our hopes of what social democracy could be. And let's go back, because I think the fact that the president brought together a group of historians to talk about the crisis, at the same time, Mm. he is using the F word, that is to say fascism, Mm. when everyone was so afraid, at least within the Beltway, to use that term, reveals a sense that even at the White House, there is a recognition that we're in a crisis of democracy. And I have to say, the White House, his handlers, and everyone who represents, you know, the mainstream of American government, they're behind, they're slow. This crisis of democracy was built in at its very foundation. It is written into a constitution that says, that implies that all forms of property, including property in human beings, is to be protected by the constitution. It's the same constitution that had to be revised right after the Civil War during Reconstruction to actually extend rights to basically at least half the people who were denied rights. It had to be extended again in the 20th century to all the women who were denied the right to vote. Mm. And it had to be extended again in 1965 when those very people who represent the vast majority of the South were denied the right to vote. And this is my frustration with this idea that Biden brought these historians to the White House to have a conversation. These are historians who were flatterers of the president, I have to say. People like yeah, Michael One Beschloss. of them wrote speeches for Biden. Yes. Another one wrote the biography of George H.W. Bush. I mean, exactly. And what are the implications? The implications are they did not recognize the history of fascism, the fifth column that was always here in the United States. I mean, why did we need a Voting Rights Act? We needed a Voting Rights Act because mm-hmm. the South was a one-party state. It was a one-party state because the majority, well, all the black people basically, were denied the right to vote. Mm. And that is, in some states, at least half the population, in places like South Carolina, Mississippi. What does that tell us? What it tells us that we don't have to go to the history of Germany or Italy for examples of the fifth column. It's right here. And what a time to talk about this when... Our basic education is under assault. Our basic understanding of our history is under assault in order to suppress that, that story of the fifth column, suppress the story of American fascism, suppress the story of American racism. So I come at it from a different place. You, know? you just reissued a classic book of your own, Freedom Dreams from 2020, because you think the radical black imagination may have turned up over the last 20 years, and it may be not looking brighter necessarily, but more current. We're still dealing with this kind of bipolar understanding of winning and losing, and what the book tries to do is recover the visions of a different kind of future people are fighting for. Solving these problems are the road to creating a more just society. The people you're talking about that come into the present day are not 
the great heroes of the civil rights movement as such, or the great church leaders. There are people like the great writer C.L.R. James, who I revere especially for his book on Melville, explaining Moby Dick while he was awaiting deportation from mm-hmm. this country. People like Bob Moses, mm-hmm. a teacher in this neighborhood, but very significantly in the civil rights movement in Mississippi. Paul Robeson, more than a singer. Amiri Baraka, the poet, more than a poet. John Coltrane, more than a musician. But you've got to take us to that place of imagination, of, of not uncaring, but triple caring. And I would include in that great list, Angela Davis, I would include many other men and women who were not just visionaries, but they were products of social movements. You know, sure, we have really smart people, but the ideas that movements put forward to reimagine the future are products of collective struggle. Mm. All the people you mentioned, including John Coltrane. John Coltrane was a genius, but there would be no John Coltrane without Hamlet, North Carolina, without his grandfather, the minister. Yes. Uh, there would be no John Coltrane without McCoy Tyner and Jimmy Garrison, you know. Elvin uh, Jones. Elvin Jones. There would be no McCoy Tyner without Charlie Parker. There would be no McCoy Tyner without Philadelphia, without New York City, without the communities that shaped his vision, and without Malcolm X. Mm. So, you know, to rethink our framework is to dethrone even the greatest scholars and intellectuals and sort of elevate ordinary people we've never heard of as a source of understanding. Are the black Americans that you're talking about more hopeful about our future and maybe of our situation than the white chattering class or maybe the white working class? Maybe darker about our situation, but more hopeful about our future, perhaps. I think you said it perfectly. Darker about our situation, more hopeful about our future. I think that's really important distinction because, again, let's come back to the moment we're in. Recent polls have shown that African Americans are far more pessimistic than probably any other community in the United States, with the exception of possibly indigenous people. And that makes sense. But it's a pessimism that does not lead to resignation. We don't have a choice but to confront catastrophe. In other words, we know it's there. African Americans and indigenous communities and other subjugated racial groups have seen catastrophe before the white people see it because they got the first part of it. Amen. That's important. I remember (laughs) Jesse Jackson quoting St. Paul to the Romans saying, We rejoice also in tribulations, for out of tribulations comes experience. Yes. Out of experience, Patience, out of patience, hope. Hope and optimism are two very different things. Right. Hope is misunderstood. Hope does not mean wishful thinking at all. Mm -hmm. Hope does not mean even thinking about the afterlife. Hope is one of those things you hold on to to establish a kind of solidarity with other people, to say that I know that because you're with me, we can possibly win. We can possibly make a dent or make a change. Because we come out of a tradition where we fight for the next generation. We fight for our ancestors, and we fight for our 
children and our grandchildren and the next generation. So it's our responsibility mm-hmm. to fight. It's our responsibility to win. It's not just hope. It's like we don't really have a choice. And in fact, right now in 2022, we're facing existential threats, the destruction of the planet. And if we don't fight, if we're not determined, then we won't have a future for our children, for anyone. Mm. And that is why we come out of traditions in which our ancestors don't die. They live as spirits among us and inform us. Stick with this moment we're in, 2022, the Biden moment the era of Black Lives Matter, Mm -hmm. framed by George Floyd in a certain way, and then this summer also by Serena Williams. It's the era of 1619, a big rediscovery. What's going on, and what should we be learning? Fascism is the response to social movements that are trying to democratize America. Fascism is just not some like bad weed that just kind of grows because of a strong man. It, it's always in response to. I mean, why do we have fascism in Germany or in Italy in response to the communists, in response to the left, in response to the workers' rebellion, in response to the Soviets, the Soviets of Turin in Italy, to you know the emergence of a deeply progressive movement within Germany? That's what fascism responds to. And so here we are, 2022, and after the spring of 2020, which seemed like a sea change, 26 million people in the streets Mm. demanding lots of things, including defunding the police. That's not the majority, but enough of a substantial minority to say we need a fundamental change in society. People are in the streets calling, you know, during a pandemic, calling for free health care, calling for single-payer health care. It wasn't just about police violence. Um, We were calling for, you know, basic income. It wasn't just police violence. That's what people are demanding. And what do we get? We get the warrior class, that is police officers, ex-police officers, military. You've got the middle class entrepreneurs, who incidentally was the same class that formed the second clan. The same class. It wasn't a working class. Interesting. These were middle class white people who formed the second clan. Same thing. They're the ones who wage war. They wage this insurrection in the White House. The rest of us look on and say, how can this happen? And when I say how can this happen, it's not the insurrection. But how can the insurrection happen and nobody gets shot and killed except (laughs) one person? Hmm. If it were like Latinx, black people, indigenous people rising up, taking over the White House, there would be a massacre. And why is it that right now people are being prosecuted for the insurrection and This also coincides with what? Attacks at the state level on multicultural education, on the right to vote, on the right to reproductive freedom, right? So the fascist insurrection may have been a failure, but look at the successes (laughs) at the state level. All this legislation that is actually implementing fascism, you know, right before our eyes. Robin Kelly, come back to this, to me, deeply fascinating substance of the black radical imagination, the future-mindedness of African America, the community-mindedness, also critically, the spirit-mindedness. It's not about getting, getting ahead, much less 
like capitalism, but take us into that other realm. Right. Now, I'm so glad you said that because I want to be clear that the black radical tradition is not all black people. It's only a segment because there are elements of this community that actually are for capitalism, that are for expanding the carceral state, that are for Trump. (laughs) I mean, you know, they exist. The black radical tradition is a stream that runs to a portion of it that tries to bring about all the things you just laid out. And the spiritual dimension is important because the spiritual dimension connects past and present and future. And I think that what we're seeing, it's not new, but I think it's maybe new to people who think of black people as one solid whole, is the confrontation between those radical black movements who have lots of support from other communities of people confronting black leadership. And when I say black leadership, the black leadership class, a black political class that basically supported Biden over, say, Bernie Sanders. And that black leadership class has not always been our friends. The black leadership class, you know, was the class that was defeated. So if there's a lesson for 2023 and 2024, it's that there's a kind of realignment. It's not a new idea, but we have to realign and build alliances with those who are willing to struggle for an anti-capitalist future, one that actually provides care, whether it's mental health care, physical health care, housing, living wage jobs. That is the fight. And when the black radical tradition wins that fight, everybody wins. You speak of the spiritual dynamic, but also of, and a lot of these people did, I think Bob Moses, for example, spoke of the energies of love. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that line, the energies of love, comes from E.P. Thompson. Story of the British working class. Exactly. I have to remind people of that because I don't want to give the impression that somehow these ideas are unique to black people. Because they're not. The energies of love, that's what E.P. Thompson's talking about for the English work class. And it applies for the Pakistanis and people in India. It applies to the Haitian. It applies to the Filipinos. It applies to the Hmong. It applies to the Diné, to you know, all indigenous peoples, drawing on the forms of knowledge that colonialism tried really hard to suppress. Come back home to the Kelly family in the new edition of your book, Freedom Dreams. Your mother is a player, fascinating one. Yes. Living poor, resourceful, incredibly ambitious, and tireless in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Yeah, way yeah. Upper West Side. Yeah, way Upper West Side. <laughs> we call her Harlem. You know, she's a follower of Paramahansa Yogananda. So she's not a Christian. She meditates. And she was meditating, you know, back in the early 60s when I was coming up. And she would wake us up early in the morning to walk up the hill to see the sunrise. Mm. Or maybe take us down to the Hudson River in the evenings to watch the sunset. She was able to see through her third eye. And that's what meditation does. And she was able to see beauty when other people couldn't, and she taught us how to see that. Your first issuing of Freedom Dreams moved a lot of people 
20 years ago, and this one will move more, I think. The language of, and the hope of this book is not the daily bread of our media, of our political conversation, of pretty much anything. At the same time, we hear it, and it's very, very alluring and beautiful. It's a book that's supposed to be a long-form poem. It's supposed to match the poetry of social movements by telling stories that we don't always talk about. I talk about all the ways in which Freedom Dreams gets picked up, gets picked up by artists, musicians like Samora Pinderhughes and Bridget Iyer, Terry Lynn Carrington. If you look at you know some of the, the Afrofuturist filmmakers like Aaron Christovell and others, they took Freedom Dreams and turned it from a noun to verb, freedom dreaming as a practice. Uh-huh. And you see this everywhere. Um, you see freedom dreams practiced in Detroit, Michigan right now in the efforts on the part of people on the ground to develop their own forms of independent economy, to create their own power grids using solar and wind, to use community benefit agreements and other things to get land. You can see it in Jackson, Mississippi. So the practice is there. Robin Kelly, this is a conversation like very few others and immensely refreshing. You've taken us to a different place. I'm feeling better already. (laughs) Thank you, Chris. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, always. Thanks also to Jackson Lears, author of Something for Nothing, Luck in America, and Helen Thompson, whose new book is Disorder. You've just heard the start of the second season of In Search of Monsters, extending our limited series collaboration with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Learn more about them at quincyinst.org and look for an additional short conversation I had with George Beebe, late of the CIA, about reading or maybe misreading Vladimir Putin. Our show this week was produced by Mary McGrath and Adam Coleman with engineering help from the WBUR production team. I'm Christopher Leiden. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a collective of smart, independent podcasters, including the Vermont-based producer Erica Heilman, whose Peabody Award-winning show is called Rumble Strip. Find her at rumblestripvermont.com. And you can browse the whole Hub and Spoke lineup at hubspokeaudio.org.